Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston, and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Just some housekeeping stuff, as we usually do at the outset of each episode. Massive response to our first episode in this series on Maura Murray. I had been asked many times by several different listeners to do this case. They wanted to hear my perspective on it. I was reluctant to do it because it's been done so well in the podcast, Missing Mara Murray. Missing Mara Murray may be one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to, and I urge you to listen to it as well. Don't miss an episode of Boston Confidential. I'll know. I'll know if you do but also listen to the entire series. It's about four or five seasons. It'll take a a good while. I listen to them, you know, every week, like most of you guys listen to my shows. And I was waiting, always waiting for this next one to come out. I was on the road a hell of a lot more back in those days. And just the intro music alone, it's super haunting. These guys do an excellent job. They try to remove all the hyperbole and emotion from this case. And man, I'd have to say hyperbole and emotion have fueled this case since it happened. Guys, the two hosts of Missing Maura Murray are Tim Polari, and I know I'm going to butcher this next last name, Lance Reinsterna. I apologize, Lance. I went to Boston Public Schools, but... You two guys have done maybe the best podcast I've ever listened to. Some would say that Barry Maguire's foray into podcasting was spurred by Missing Maura Murray. But these two guys, Lance and Tim, seem like straight shooters, and their research is impeccable. Guys, I also have something you could watch. I think you have to pay for it at this point on Amazon. It's a documentary called... The Disappearance of Mara Murray, and it is by an investigative journalist, Maggie Freeling. She had been on the podcast many times, and I think she was actually working for the podcast Missing Mara Murray at one point. And she does have Lance and Tim on. They provide a solid guidepost through this crazy story. They interview James Renner. They interview in-depth Mara's father, Fred Murray, of all the things that this documentary does, focusing on Fred is very illuminating. He's not the guy he was presented to be, even in the podcasts. He's just the guy whose life stopped when his daughter disappeared. That's my opinion. I'll tell you a little bit more about the interview with Fred Murray. It's super revealing. I think it's three or four episodes in. So you have to buy The Disappearance of Mara Murray on Amazon or elsewhere. But I bought it on Amazon Prime 
And I highly recommend it. If you're following the Karen Reed case, it's kind of like Turtle Boy's documentary on it. It really gets you up to speed. But even more so than the Turtle Boy documentary on the Karen Reed case, the disappearance of Mara Murray cuts through a lot of the BS. And there's not a lot of evidence that's been released. And quite frankly, I don't believe there's a lot of evidence. And people fill that in with innuendo and speculation. And innuendo and speculation are just not evidence. And it seems to be in the Mara Murray case, innuendo and speculation are stacked upon each other so tightly, people think these are facts. A lot of them are not. And Maggie Freeling does an excellent job on cutting down on that outside noise. So in this case, I'd probably watch The Disappearance of Mara Murray, available on Amazon first, and then I'd do the Missing Mara Murray podcast. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Guys, I'll put The Disappearance of Mara Murray and Missing Mara Murray podcast in the show notes so you'll have them. Also, guys, a little update on the Karen Reed case, the Turtle Boy case. We're going to have Turtle Boy on next week, I hope. We did correspond last week. He is busy with a host of stuff. I urge you to check in on his blog, Turtle Boy Daily News. Just throw that into Google and it'll come right up. Specifically, I don't have an episode number for you, but recently... More photographs of the lead detective on this case, Michael Proctor, and a young preteen Colin Albert together at a wedding. The families were at a wedding sitting together. These are new photographs, and it shows how close these families are. And Michael Morrissey, the district attorney in this case, had said there is no, I don't know what lawyery, weaselly words he used, but words to the fact that there's not a substantial familial connection between these families. And these photographs say differently. And if more photographs or video of these families interacting come out, I don't know how this case can go forward. He's literally dancing and playing with this kid at the wedding, and he wants to say he doesn't know their families. It's asinine, it's absurd, and it's corruption, quite frankly. I think if this case goes forward, I think Karen Reed's defense guys, they're very good. They're going to drive a freight train through that family connection issue. Never mind the fact that Proctor didn't get all the geofence data from everybody in the house, not to mention the fact that he didn't interview Colin Albert for, what, a year? And this all seems like they were trying to sweep it in a different direction towards Karen Reed. And again, the defense is going to drive a freight train through this. And I think the Commonwealth has a hell of a dilemma. I think they see this as being a situation where they can deal with a loss in court, right? Karen Reed gets found not guilty. What they can't deal with, guys, is having this corruption exposed. Man, because if this case goes the way I'm thinking it's going to go, it's going to be hard to support the police going forward. And I frequently get emails like this. 
They say, Barry, you know what the FBI in Boston did, sending innocent men to death row, aligning themselves with the kingpin of Irish gangsters who was committing homicides while he was a top echelon informant, and you still support the police, Barry? That's what I get in my emails. My response usually is, guys, yes, I do. Does that extend to the FBI anymore? No, it doesn't. And that's one of the things that gives me the most pause in the Karen Reed case. We're waiting for the FBI or at least the feds to come in and be the savior here. And we know their history, their recent history in the country and their all-time history in the Boston area. It's not a good one. But who knows, guys, maybe this case will get turned around and we find out actually who killed Boston police officer John O'Keefe. I think his family deserves that. All right, guys. So last I left you from the first episode of the Mara Murray case, I was going to tell you a little bit more about Mara Murray, her personal life. She went to Hanson Whitman High School. But guys, one thing I wanted to say first is, yes, I do have a bit of a cold. So if you can hear it. I'm just getting over it, and I was kind enough to pass it on to my wife, and she is overjoyed to that effect. But one of the reasons I'm kind of reluctant to tell all the background data about Mara is some of it isn't super favorable. I'm going to tell you about it, but I'm starting to think more and more that whatever happened at UMass right, with her boyfriend and everything else going on in her life. She was in a car accident. I'm going to tell you about it. It's not a great time for Mara. Would she have grown out of it? I believe she would have, and she was in the process of doing so. I'm slightly reluctant to speak on it because it is, it's kind of unfavorable, and who needs that if it doesn't have anything to do with the case? And that's where I'm going with what I'm trying to tell you right now. I think whatever happened at UMass previously or anywhere previously had nothing to do with the case and it has nothing to do with the case because on February 9th, 2004, everything that happened before that car accident had nothing to do with what happened after the car accident. I believe, and I know I'm kind of going out of order here, but I've been thinking about this case a lot and doing a lot of research on it. And I was never sure what direction it would take, but it seems as time has went on, Mara met with a dastardly stranger. And I believe this guy, just after the accident, sees her walking down the road and feigns an attempt to help. He can sense that she doesn't want anything to do with the police that are certainly due to arrive any second, and they did. And she weighs the options very quickly. Do I get into the car or wait for the police? Because she was drinking and probably drunk. According to Butch Atwood, she had to steady herself on the car while speaking. Her eyes were glassy and voice was a little slurred. There was a ton of booze in the car, so I think Mara was afraid of getting an operating under the influence charge, and I think she would have because she had been drinking. And did that cause the accident? I'm thinking probably. It's so dark up there, winding roads. So in a nutshell, guys, that's my theory of the case. She ran into a dastardly stranger 
and was likely killed pretty quickly. The search dogs in the area followed Mara's trail, I don't know, maybe about half a block or, or so, and in the middle of the street, the scent just disappears. So that leads me to believe she got into a vehicle willingly. You know, I don't think somebody tried to abduct her. She was still too close to the accident scene. I think this would have been a willing invitation into this vehicle. And it was the end of Mara. And that's why it's been so difficult to solve because a stranger homicide, right, where they have no connection is infinitely more difficult to solve than a boyfriend, girlfriend type domestic homicide situation. You know which way to look. In a stranger on stranger homicide, it's all question marks. And of course, there's other theories about what happened to Mara, that she went up there to kill herself, that she went up there to meet other people or were traveling with other people. That's the tandem driver theory espoused by author James Renner. Renner seemingly still believes that Mara is alive. And at a certain point, he went up to Canada to look for her, and he believes he got close. I'm not so sure on that one, but that's what Renner believes. But guys, as usual, I'll take you through all those theories and all that. But let me tell you a little bit about Mara Murray. The first thing I need to do, guys, is correct a mistake I made from last episode. I told you Mara was 19, but when she disappeared, she was 21. She was 19 when she started West Point and... Man, what an accomplishment to get in there. This kid was simply remarkable. Mara was born in Hanson, Massachusetts. Her dad is Fred Murray. Her mother was Lori. She had an older sister, Kathleen, and Julie Murray, who I believe was a year or two years older than Mara, and they attended high school together. And they had a little brother named Kurt. And as I said, they lived in Hanson, Massachusetts. They seem to be having the quintessential suburban Massachusetts life. They went to local schools. Mom and dad were at home. And, you know, they were homeowners and all that. So life was going as well as can be expected. It's a pretty good life, a middle-class life here in Massachusetts. And Hanson's a great town. It's beautiful, actually. There's a ton of cranberry bogs, and they share a school. It's Whitman Hanson Regional School. They're both small towns, very nice. It's about an hour from Boston, 45 minutes to an hour, depending on traffic. If traffic's bad, it's 90 minutes in. But at that point in 2004-ish, I don't know if a ton of people were commuting into the city because it is so far down. There is a commuter rail line station there, so it's a great town, and the building around Boston in the 1990s eventually found its way to the Whitman-Hanson area, and you could get a house cheaper, much cheaper in, say, Hanson than you could in Braintree, Massachusetts, which is, you know, 10, 15 minutes from the city. So people were looking for bargains, kind of crept down the South Shore, and you come upon Hanson, and it's absolutely beautiful. Ton of sports, very well-heeled community. I'd say it's solidly middle class or upper middle class. 
And I think that's the bracket the Murrays were in. So if you're ever walking through a high school auditorium or lobby and you look and see the same names on all these trophies, right, for running, track, field, whatever, that is Whitman Hanson High School because Julie Murray and Mara won every award in track and field, you know, history. Like, I think they have their own wing, their own trophy wing at Whitman Hanson. They're very well known at the time. And I think now to this day, they're still well known around town. And they participated civically, you know, with sports, youth sports and all that. So they were an excellent family. And both Julie and Mara got into running and they were coached by Fred, who had run marathons himself. Now, there's a camp out there who says that Fred Murray pushed the girls to an extreme to be these super successful athletes. He counters that, yeah, he coached them and they were good at it and they were self-driven. So it might have looked like, yeah, he was pushing them a bit too much. He says it's really not true. And I urge you to watch that documentary about Mara Murray. And he comes off entirely different than he's been presented during the last 20 years or so. So Fred and Laurie Murray end up getting divorced sometime around the time where Kurt Murray, who was 16 years old when Mara went missing in 2004, sometime around when he came along, Fred ended up moving to Weymouth, Massachusetts. It's a neighboring community, maybe 10, 15 minutes away. And he was still very active with the family. I don't know what the issues were surrounding the divorce and all that, but I don't think it was a great time. Julie Murray and Mara, I don't think struggled very much academically. They excelled at everything they did. I don't think any subject, and I think we've all known people like this who schoolwork just comes naturally to them. And I think that was both Julie and Mara. Mara was sharp as a tack. She got a 1420 on her SATs. And Julie Murray, I believe she was two years ahead of Mara. She had went off to West Point, believe it or not. And Mara followed in her footsteps, and man, that's off the charts. What are the odds of that even happening? I'm not sure. But Julie goes off from Whitman Hanson High School to West Point, and shortly thereafter, Mara followed. But Mara didn't really take to military life, and the program at West Point is to make you an officer. You're going to be commanding people. So this isn't a typical collegiate program. You're under high stress. They want you to be under stress. They need you to be able to deal with the worst stress in the world, sending people to die and killing people, right? Because that's what the military's job is. So they put these kids in West Point and the other military academies under a tremendous amount of stress. A lot of the stress has to do with just not being treated super kindly. It's not a loving, embraceful environment and just stacking on responsibilities. And it teaches these kids at a young age how to be super responsible for themselves 
and their teammates. I believe Mara was studying chemical engineering at West Point. I, I laugh because that's so beyond my capabilities. I wouldn't have been able to apply for the program. I couldn't have gotten that far. But there she is at West Point following her sister. But again, she just didn't really jibe with military life. And I think she wanted out. There were some stressors on her. Her mother was sick with cancer. And every day you're under stress at West Point. They kind of just keep jabbing you a little bit. And during a trip to Fort Knox, actually, yeah, Fort Knox, where we print our money, Mara got caught in a minor shoplifting scandal. And I'm not going to get into it because I don't know what bearing it really has. But she got caught on a minor shoplifting beef. I believe it was cosmetics or something. And there's some people in the Mara Murray world who say maybe she wanted to be dismissed from the military academy. But this happens. She is disciplined. But I think Mara elects to leave. And I want to throw this out there to my military people if you've went to a military academy. I'm not entirely sure But if you leave of your own accord, you might have to pay back the government for that tuition. If you leave because of a disciplinary issue, maybe you don't have to pay it back, you dig? So either way, Mara leaves, but she leaves of her own accord. She leaves West Point of her own accord and doesn't even miss a semester. She gets into the nursing program at UMass Amherst, and that's where she'd attend. She didn't miss any school, remarkably. But she starts in the nursing program and picks it up pretty quickly. Everything's going pretty well. She's making friends. She had met a boyfriend, Bill Rausch, who was, I believe, Julie's classmate. He was going to graduate pretty soon. And they fell head over heels in love. And Look on the internet, there's pictures of Mara and Bill Rausch, and they're like Ken and Barbie. Mara was a beautiful girl. She was about five foot seven, and she had been an athlete from, I don't know, seven or eight. She was a long distance runner in great shape, absolutely beautiful. I'd say in the top physical condition, you'd have to be at West Point, right? And she loved the outdoors, loved working out. And Bill was the same way, but very good looking guy. But people would say pretty quickly that Bill was overpowering, controlling, and borderline abusive. And he was always attempting to pick up women. That's what I pick up from James Renner's book and the podcast, Missing Mara Murray. Not a great guy. He'd go on to have some problems with women and violence, guys. But he is not a suspect in this case, so I'm not going to spend any more time on him. He was at Fort Sill in Oklahoma, you know, thousands of miles away from New Hampshire when this happened in February 04. The only part Bill Roush played in this was maybe stressing Mara Murray out to the point where she wanted a split for a couple of days because... She was breaking up with him. I think that's been established. She was breaking up with Bill. And her family didn't really like Bill, especially Julie, I think. She kind of tolerated him. He was a big flirt. He'd be there with this beautiful girl, Mara Murray. 
and me trying to pick up other girls' waitresses while she's sitting right there. That's the type of guy he was. So James Renner's theory of this case involves Bill Roush a little bit more intimately. Renner believes Mara may have been pregnant and was not going to share a baby with a guy, a womanizer like Bill Roush. That's undetermined at this point, guys. So in terms of stressors, I'm sure Mara Murray didn't feel ecstatic about leaving West Point, but she was on to better and new things. Unfortunately, at UMass, more stresses would come Mara's way. And I think they had more to do with alcohol than most people realize. There seems to be a ton of drinking involved in this young girl's life. And I remember my young life, my drinking would have dwarfed hers, I'm assuming. But she soon gets picked up in some type of sting by the campus police. A group of kids, Amara being one of them, was using like stolen credit card numbers to buy pizza at the local pizza place. And Mara had done this act and used the credit card numbers. And when she went to sign for the pizza at the dorm room, the campus police started an investigation. I don't know if she was arrested there or summonsed or what, but she eventually pleads the case down. It's not a major criminal investigation here, but She pleads the case down to a misdemeanor theft type thing that will be expunged from her record if she stays out of trouble for the next three months. Up here, they call it continued without a finding, I think. And if she does that, the record would be expunged. And that's good. She wouldn't have to put that on her nursing application when she graduates because she has to be licensed by the state. So that was good. That looked like that was going in the right direction. And I think Bill Roush was always a stressor in her life. But the next stressor was just a few days before she hightailed it out of UMass Amherst. Fred had come up to help Mara get a new car because her setting was a junk box. You know how it was with college kids back then. I think college kids today drive new cars more so than kids did back then. But Fred Murray had come up to see Mara and help her buy a new vehicle. There was some problems about him withdrawing money from the bank because he had to use an ATM out of state and all this. But that was going to be a plan. But when Fred was there, Mara wanted to go to a party in the late evening hours, like late, you know, that's how college kids do it. I get it. But she borrows Fred's car, goes to this party, obviously is drinking and whatever. About 3.30, she's driving this vehicle back to Fred's motel and gets into a pretty serious car accident. And I don't know how she avoided an OUI charge on that case. But the car was something like $10,000 worth of damage. And I think Fred was disappointed. Mara was disappointed. In the documentary that will be in the show notes, they say that Fred didn't really have to raise his voice at her. You know, she knew he was upset. She was effing up all over the place. Tremendous stress she's under. Again, though, I think it comes back to Mara's behavior. And that stems from just drinking too much. 
And most people work that out of their systems about this age. You would have to think it would be coming to an end, hopefully. So the next stressor in Mara's life seems to come shortly thereafter. It was right before Mara left. She had received a call from her sister, Kathleen, that reportedly left Mara nearly catatonic. Mara had been working as like almost like an RA, but like in a security mode, resident advisor or whatever, basically keeping security in the dorm rooms. And it was a pretty big setup, and they had a lot of people doing this. Mara was one of them. And another supervisor had noticed Mara was out of sorts, like almost catatonic. And the only response Mara could give as to what was wrong, she said her sister. And it would come out later that it was believed she was talking about her sister, Kathleen. And Kathleen was struggling with some alcohol-related issues. And I believe there was a setback. Kathleen seemed to think that wouldn't be enough to send Mara into more of a tailspin. But I'm not entirely sure Kathleen knew about the other stressors going on in her life. So it seemed like Kathleen had went to a rehabilitation facility and was sober for a decent amount of time, but was picked up by the husband. And the first stop they make is a liquor store. And I think that story was relayed to Mara Murray, and Kathleen was typically, if it was nighttime, would be drinking. And I think that was about par for the course. And maybe her sister going back to drinking so quickly after rehab did set Mara off. She was escorted from that building to her dorm room, and the next day she hightails it out. She writes to her professors that there's been a death in the family, but some schoolmates, classmates of Mara's, reported later that, yes, her dorm room was packed up, but not in the sense that people thought she wasn't coming back. It was February, and they had just come back. And it is reported that Mara may not have fully put this stuff away, because when they looked in her dorm room, they find what appears to be an email laid open to whomever would find it, regarding Bill Roush. So there's debate on whether Mara thought she was going to return to UMass or not. A classmate says she had just turned in homework that was needed for their coursework that morning. And she says, if she wasn't going to come back, why would you do that? And Mara returned some scrubs to this one classmate and Mara seemed okay. You know, she talked to her a little bit, didn't know about all the other stresses, but she assumed that Mara was coming back and nearly everybody did. So you see, guys, when you put all these stresses on the line, like their evidence and what would happen on February 9th, 2004, does that make the case? Those aren't facts. Those did happen to her, but they didn't happen during and just after the accident. It could be no relation whatsoever. It seems to be, guys, one of those situations where two things can be correct at the same time. Those stresses did happen to Mara Murray. That's a fact. But what is the direct connection of those set of facts as to what happened just after the accident? All right, guys. So I think 
what I'm going to do is leave you here. I've given you my theory of the case that this was a maniacal stranger. And that's why we haven't seen any activity on Morris credit cards or debit cards, cell phone, anything in 20 years. It'll be 20 years in February. So, you know, I don't think a trained intelligence person or a mobster with means could do what more is done just disappearing like this. Sorry. But next week, we'll get into the witnesses to the accident and some of the theories that people have come up with with Maura Murray. Suicide, running away, or, you know, the stranger danger. That's where I come down on. But we'll go over that all next week. It's just a strange case. And it's weird to me now that I feel like I think what happened before the accident and what happened after are separate. That's where I come down. Let me know where you come down on my email at barry at bostonconfidential.net. That's barry at bostonconfidential.net. And let me know your theory. All right, guys, I'm going to leave you there. I'll get on to the next one in this series next week, and we'll go from there. Again, email barry at bostonconfidential.net. Otherwise, I'll see you on the flip side.